It's been 20 years since 9-11. Today's college freshmen, they weren't even alive then. And with our busy lives and the relentless 24-hour news cycle, we're in danger of letting 9-11 fade away from our cultural memory. We won't let this happen. Iron Light Labs presents the 20 for 20 podcast, 20 heroic stories about 9-11 for the 20th anniversary. I'm Nils Jorgensen. I was a New York City firefighter for almost 22 years until I contracted the rarest form of leukemia from cleaning up Ground Zero and was forced to retire from the job I loved. I'm lucky to be alive. Many of my best friends aren't, but this isn't about me. It's about the heroes of 9-11 and its aftermath who forged good out of evil. Love amidst the taking of 2,977 innocent lives and about an equal number who've died since then from 9-11 related illnesses. Today's story, episode three of 20. The smoke, the fear, the darkness that they all must have experienced in those final, final moments, how scary it must have been. You're listening to David Bracca, the son of Al Bracca, a bond broker who worked for Cantor Fitzgerald for 16 years and died in the World Trade Center. Cantor is a global company whose headquarters was in some of the top floors of the North Tower, between the 101st and 105th floors. On September 11th, the first plane hit the North Tower between the 93rd and 99th floors. Cantor had 658 employees who were at the office that day, the plane struck less than a dozen floors beneath them. Not a single employee would return home. Within this tragedy was a light shining in the darkness, and it was David's dad. Today, David brings us his extraordinary story. But first, a few words about our generous sponsor. And now, let's get back to the story. Before 9-11, Al and his wife had become reinvigorated in their faith as they saw their daughter miraculously healed of a rare blood disease. It changed their lives, and people noticed. At work, Al was given a nickname. He was known as the Rev, which on one hand was a sign of respect, and on the other hand, well... That type of an environment, particularly back then, was... It was friendly cutthroat where just like you were in a, if you were in a neighborhood and you're hanging out with your, with your buddies and you are mocking each other for whatever reason like you know kids do and even you know adults do with your friends that was that type of environment you're with these guys all day from 8 o'clock yeah. in the morning until 5 o'clock 6 o'clock in the afternoon and sometimes you're entertaining and so there is this bonding that has happened but if there is a weakness, they people try to exploit that weakness. Certainly saying I'm a Christian is going to be, in their mind, a weakness. And I remember those, those certainly conversations at the dinner table where they said, Hey, Al, we're going to take customers out at you know, so-and-so place, and the restaurant was a go-go bar. And he says, Guys, I'm not going in here. At that time, and you're talking about you know, the, the 80s right. and early you know, 90s, where clients wanted cocaine. Well, Gordon Gecko days, right? Yeah. I mean, that was, Prostitutes. Yeah. They wanted to go to go-go bars. It was all part of the entertainment. Yeah. My fellows and I, I have, you know, don't want it. Now, I'm not saying that that 
you know, I don't know of any um, uh, stories. I know that they, you know, go into, you know, these go-go bars and stuff like that. But I do know that there was at times, you know, just different things that clients wanted that my father would not would not participate in. And he stood and held his ground because of that. There were times when they would joke around and put a Playboy book on his desk. He would go to, you know, use the restroom or go get lunch and come back and there would be an open centerfold there, you know, and they would bust his chops on that. At times they would, you know, maybe even he would make decisions in trades and they would show shove Christianity back in his you know, face. Oh, if you're supposed to be Christian, why are you acting this way? Why, why are you doing that? That sort of thing. You know, to try to goad him. And I think that he, um, again, stayed, held his ground. Now, there are often times when, quietly, when these men needed prayer, when things were happening in their own lives, they would quietly go to my dad, hey, can I talk to you about something? And he would very, you know, quietly, confidentially, um, talk to them and pray with them and, and share in a conversational way about, you know, the gospel and, and about you know, you know, Christ and what that meant for him. In 1993, terrorists tried to take down the World Trade Center for the first time. And on that day, Al helped lead his co-workers to safety. While ushering them down the stairs, several people reportedly asked him, Al, you praying? Al, you praying? And Al responded, yeah, I got you covered. And he would have them covered again on September 11th, 2001. But before we get there, Al's son David would see his father one final time. He died at Tuesday. Monday before, he, they had just moved from a house about a mile from here to an, another section of Middletown called, called Leonardo. And they were downsizing. I remember he was just upset, a little bit, um, he was just having a bad day. You know, I says, Pop, what's 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 the matter? How come? You know, why, why are you so upset? Eh, work work's getting to me. You know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my early fifties. I don't know, I don't know how much longer I have here. This is a young man's game, so to speak. You know, and I was, I was there to help him move some furniture. Again, they had just moved in, so I, I, I put my arms around him and go, Dad. You know, God's given you everything you wanted, right? You you moved. You wanted to downsize. You wanted to have a you know you know, less of a mortgage, you want a less burden, be able to, you know, pay off some bills, all this other stuff. You know, he says, ah, you just, you know, it's, it's just it's just hard. I'm just having a really, really, really bad day. So I kissed him goodbye. You know, we moved some furniture. I kissed him goodbye as I would normally do on the cheek. That was it. Last time I saw her. The next morning, David was driving in New Jersey for work listening to AM radio, and he heard about the first plane crash, which was into his dad's building. He called his dad. No answer. He called him several more times. No answer. Some people were able to talk to their loved ones before they died that day. Others tried but couldn't, possibly because of the high call volume and the damage to communication systems. And although David couldn't reach his father... Al tried to get a message out to his wife. There was a company called MCI. It's a long-distance phone company back back then. Apparently, he was able to call out and get to uh, an operator. And uh, he left a message with the operator. And it was sometime later, 
I think it was a month, maybe even longer than that, where the MCI operator actually got a hold of my mother. She was the woman who took the call and at least get a message to us and saying just, you know, I'm, I, it's, it's hot, the smoke, I can't get out. Just tell my parents, tell my wife, tell my children that I love I do know that other wives who were talking to their husbands who had also died, they were able to call through. Uh, they were able to get out and, and have a message to their, their wives saying that the floor is hot, there's a lot of smoke, they're on a desk. And they had said that Al Braca is there and we're, 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 we're up. We're praying. We're saying the Lord's Prayer. I will always remember that. And how many people, I don't know. I mean, everybody has their own count. How many people were there, I, I, I don't know. And I don't want to cheapen the story by exaggerating because I just don't know because you hear different versions of it. There was uh, written accounts that there were, could have been up to 50 people I, actually I heard there that. with him as he was... Yeah, I heard that. And again, the story is... He jumps on the table and says, I'm going to see Jesus who's coming with me. And I, I don't know if that's, you know, I would love to know if that, that happened. And I, but I, I don't want to, um, the, the, the fact that these poor, all of these poor people, you know, who, who um, all made that decision. The decision? to pray with Al into their deaths, and the decision of some to become Christians in their final moments. That should be celebrated, not necessarily what my dad said. I think all of them made that decision, you know? And um, I think that that's, and for my dad to be part of it, that's awesome too. David's being humble about his dad's story. These accounts that you're hearing about are all because some Cantor employees were able to get through to their spouses on the phone and relay this story. And although there are varying numbers of how many people were there, the overall story is the same. With Al's help, many families know that their loved ones didn't die in despair, but with the promise of eternal life. Whether you're of faith or not, this was comforting to those families, families that were in desperate need of closure. Just a week after the attack, David's family also saw closure, and we'll hear how they did after the break. And now, let's get back to the story. This next scene was a remarkable moment. David went to the city hoping that the police or FEMA had identified his father's body. A rep from FEMA, the Red Cross and a chaplain, escorted David into another room. The FEMA rep had a walkie-talkie, and he asked David to describe his father. David said, gray hair, 5 foot 10, 200 some odd pounds. The FEMA rep left the room, and he came back and he asked, what was he wearing? I said, I don't know. I said, I'm assuming a polo shirt, khakis. Remember, it was warm out. September was still, you know, still summer, I don't know, if you, if you will. I said, I'm assuming that. Business casual. He leaves, he comes back out again. He says, was he, uh, any scars? David explained to the FEMA rep that his father had shattered his elbow pulling weeds and he had a big scar from reconstructive surgery. The FEMA rep said, okay. He left and then he came back and he asked, any jewelry? 
I guess a watch, bracelet, ring. He says, uh, on the ring, who's um, Al B and JB? I go, Al Braca, Gene Braca. He leaves, he comes back again, he goes, I got the, we have a positive identification, your father, he's at the morgue. This is exactly one week later. Imagine that. And he was more or less identifiable. He was in, and in fully intact. Um, obviously, from my understanding, the body was swollen because of the water, because of the, um, the force of falling. But clearly, at that moment, very little bodies were found yeah. one week later. Al's body was one of 293 bodies that were found intact. It's amazing that any bodies were found intact at all. Many people were burned alive. Many others were crushed. Imagine the force of a skyscraper falling down all around you. It's miraculous that the body of a man was found intact who was above the crash site at the time of the collision. Maybe it was a freak happenstance of chance, or maybe not. But part of me keeps going back to his nickname, The Rev. Which, by the way, is an interesting backstory that would bring some more comfort to Al's wife after his death. Al was given a nickname by a co-worker named Rick, who on September 11th didn't go into the office that day. And this poor man um, would have to attend all of these memorial services with that burden that he was one of the survivors. And I remember this because I was standing next to my mother and we had just gone to a memorial service. And I don't remember if it was my father's memorial service or if, if it was uh, you know, another one of my father's colleagues. But Rick went up to my mother and says, Mrs. Bracca, my name is Rick Berman. I had the honor and privilege and pleasure of working with your husband for all, all of those years. And I was the one that gave him the name of the Rev, and knowing that I said it out of affection and love for your husband, and he, you know, and I will cherish my relationship with him forever. Something to that effect, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing because it was 20 years ago, but that was basically the gist. So this poor man had to go through life knowing that he had survived, but was able to connect with my mother in a way that I was just a beautiful, beautiful couple you know, if it was a minute, two minutes, but it was that beautiful scene of them too. My mother hugged him and kissed him and says, I know Rick, I love you. And that was, that was it. The amount of love and support David's family got from their community was remarkable. David says Middletown, New Jersey needs to be honored and remembered for that. Their town lost 37 lives, the most deaths per capita for a town who lost victims to the 9-11 attacks. But despite this tragedy, Middletown, New Jersey put their better halves on full display, showing how in solidarity, Americans can unite and make a meaningful difference. The days and weeks after, the, the town just rallied around our family. Someone was always there. You were the police for weeks, months later. I don't know how many, it, it was probably, it was a while. They would just bring, you know, uh, send over every once in a while, a cop car, just check in on all the widows. You, you guys okay? Is there anything you need? Imagine that. Is that amazing? That is beautiful. Is that amazing? Yes. And even beyond that, all of these these groups, people were sending blankets and stuffed animals and care packages. The local businesses, uh, 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 Tolercio and, and Dearborn and some of the other restaurants in the area would send food. 
uh, to my mother's house. That's beautiful. Um, just to uh, you know, uh, just just because they felt that they wanted to do something, they wanted to uh, you know uh, help out in, in any way. I mean, that's just remarkable to you know to do that. Hey, David, um, Cantor. Yeah. They lost 658 mm -hmm. workers, which was more or less two-thirds of the workforce folks yeah. that were killed there. We've read and researched that they, Cantor did the best they could they, to take care did. of the families after. Without a doubt, I, I think that the, uh, the, 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 the president and CEO of the company, um, Howard Lechner, he was interviewed a lot. And I think it, he, it took personally. He lost his, his brother on 9-11 and he took it personally and he vowed to take care of these families and he did he did and uh, I was just recently reading an article about it uh, you know this was a couple of years ago that he even hired a lot of the kids yes I think 57 50 I something believe. right yeah that's beautiful uh, and which is great I think you know yeah I think it was a testament to how personally he took it and he um, made a commitment uh, uh, you know, to the families, true and to his he, word. True to his word. I think that uh, Mr. Luckman did did exactly what he said he was going to do, and I think that uh, we should be, you know, certainly grateful for that because he didn't really have to. Cantor Fitzgerald provided health insurance to the fallen employees' families for ten years, and committed twenty five percent of the firm's profits to them for five years which ended up being over $180 million. They also created a nonprofit, the Cantor Fitzgerald Relief Fund, which has distributed $320 million to both these families and other victims of terrorism and natural disasters. But amidst all the support, families like David's are still feeling tremendous loss. It's a cliche. It sounds like a cliche, but know that it is heartfelt. It, it's deep in my bones. It's deep in my heart. Every day I think about my father. Every single day. A lot of people have stories to tell, and I think that's wonderful and stuff. So I just want to make, you know, Al, Al Brock of the man versus Al Brock of the myth. You know, he was a flawed guy, a flawed guy you know. Uh, yeah, love Jesus, but he's just a guy. You know, and he, he did made mistakes, lost his temper, said things he shouldn't have said, you know, said words he shouldn't probably shouldn't have said, and that's okay. You know, just all sinners. And we're just trying to figure it out and we have a, a roadmap. We know what that roadmap is, but whether we follow that roadmap every single day, that's 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 something else, but that's okay. That's where grace comes in, that's where forgiveness comes in. And I think that in many ways he you know, he learned that at the very, that the day before, he was upset. The day before he was upset, you know, he didn't have joy. He was upset. He feared. Didn't know. There was a lot of unknowns, right? Imagine that. And the next day, the very next day, according to everything I heard, he's on the desk saying, I'm going to see Jesus who's coming with me. Pretty cool. Pretty powerful. To learn more, please go to 20for20podcast.com. And before we close, a special message from a very dear friend of mine. Hi, this is actor Robert John Burke. I've been fortunate to be a part of projects like Tombstone, Law & Order Special Victims Unit, Gossip Girl, Rescue Me, 
But I've been even more fortunate to become friends with incredible first responders like your host, Nils Jorgensen. Folks who are willing to sacrifice every single one of their tomorrows so that we can have our today. As Nils so powerfully says, I lost a lot of my friends on 9-11, including my best friend. And I felt like I had to pick up the flag for them. So I became a volunteer firefighter and I have been ever since. It's why I'm so grateful you're listening to the 20 for 20 podcast. I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review it, and share it with five friends because these stories are so important. Thanks for listening.